Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. What is the goal of the Christian life? Have you ever thought about that question? I mean, have have you ever really thought about what is the real purpose? What is the goal of the Christian life? What is the purpose of being a Christian? What are we really accomplishing, or what do we really hope to accomplish? What is the goal of the Christian life? I have asked this question of a number of people, and of course I get various answers, but I would have to summarize the most common answer that I get when I ask, what is the goal of the Christian life? The most common answer would sound something like this. The goal or the purpose of the Christian life is to stop sinning. That's what it's about. I have found that for the most part, that is the predominant belief amongst many people who identify themselves as Christians, that that is the purpose for being a Christian, that that is the objective of a Christian, it is to stop sinning. And I, of course, believe that this is a very vain goal, and the reason why I believe that is because I don't see any evidence that would show that anyone will ever stop sinning. And so I don't believe that this is a worthy goal. Many people do believe that it is a worthy goal, that it is something to aspire to, it is something to pursue, but I personally have trouble trying to live a life that I know I will never live. To me, that not only sounds like absolute fantasy, but it also sounds like a life of deception. To me, it sounds like I'm going to live a life deceiving other people and myself by giving the impression that perhaps I can get really close. I can get really close to how I should live. But for the most part, that's how a lot of people live. I personally define the Christian life in a very different way. If someone was to ask me, what is the goal of the Christian life? What is the purpose of being a Christian? I would have to say, personally, that to me, the goal of the Christian life is for a person to start trusting their God, to trust and to believe in what he has already done for them and what he has already given to them because of what he's done for them. It is my opinion, it is my sincere belief, it is my conviction, my deep conviction, that that is the goal of the Christian life. It is to live a life trusting in what your God has already done for you. It is to live a life of being thankful for what he has already done for you. And that this is a separate and independent way, it is a completely different way of living than living on the basis of trying to get rid of your sin, of trying to stop sinning. I believe that that is the true goal of a Christian. It is to live a life of trusting in your God and of relying on what he has done for you and of living out of the abundance of what he has given to you as an inheritance as a result of his death. But for those who don't believe that, there are many people who don't. I would have to say the vast majority of people who I encounter who identify themselves as Christians don't believe the same way that I do, that I am relatively alone if you were to consider the magnitude of differences that actually exist in the world of Christianity. Many people look at it very differently. Many people do believe that the goal of the Christian life is to stop sinning. 
And there are many passages in the scriptures that people refer to in order to encourage people to live that way. One of the most profound sections in the scriptures that people refer to when considering this is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And people love this section, especially verse 4, where it says you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And some people look at this from that point of view. They look at this section in the scriptures, this verse in the scriptures, from the point of view of the goal of the Christian life is to stop sinning. And if you look at it from that perspective, if that is your assumption, if that is your bias, then it's very easy to conclude that we need to encourage people, whatever you do, stop sinning, even if it kills you, stop sinning. Even if you have to maybe kill yourself, or regardless of what it takes, even if it gets to the point where you wish you were dead, something like that, still do whatever it takes not to sin. I mean, after all, look at the Lord Jesus. He was willing to die. He didn't lose heart. He went through it all, and so use him as your example. Use him as your model. Be like Jesus. That's what Jesus would do. You do it too. And many people look at this verse in that context. Now, I personally do not see it that way. I just don't. I personally believe that verse 4 means that you have not yet resisted the temptation to live a life of obedience and repentance to the point where you would be willing to shed your blood because of somebody else's sin. That's what Jesus went through. He stood firm to his convictions, to his belief, to the point where he was willing to have his blood shed because of the sins of others, not because of your sin. So that's how I read verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of being killed in your striving against other people's sins, in your striving against other people's unbelief in the Messiah. You have not yet striven. You have not yet endured. You have not yet run the race of the new covenant to the point where you would be willing to stand up and testify for your faith, for what you know is true. You have not yet done that to the point where you would have to go up against the resistance, the resistance of other people's unbelief, where you may suffer as Jesus suffered because others would sin against you. I believe that is what he's referring to in verse 4. But other people look at it differently. They, they really do. They really look at it in the context of you need to make sure that you stop sinning even if it kills you. That's what a lot of people believe when it comes to this section in the scriptures. Now, again, then in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. In that context, I think he's referring to our own personal sins, not the sins that others may commit against us, as he says in verse 4. 
then in this case, certainly, we should lay these things aside. However, the sin that I believe he is referring to is not the sin of what do you do with your flesh, but the sin of unbelief, as he expressed in Hebrews chapter 3. He expressed this in Hebrews chapter 10. And I believe when he speaks about the witnesses of faith, he's talking about the people in Hebrews chapter 11, who were not recognized because they lay aside every sin in their life, but they were recognized because they believed their God. Otherwise, you're going to be doomed. You're going to be doomed, absolutely doomed, to living a life that you know you will never live. And good luck with that. And I say that because I personally believe that you have nothing to look forward to but luck because I don't think your God is involved in it at all. Now, when considering the differences between what I just described, there's another way of looking at this. I like to think of this sometimes as a number line. If you were to think about the number line for integers, for example, integers are those numbers that have either positive sign or negative sign where zero is in the middle. On one side of this number line, you've got minus infinity to zero. And on the other side of this number line, you've got zero to positive infinity. That this is another way to think about this. I believe that the Old Covenant has to do with those things between minus infinity to zero. And if we were to look at it from that point of view, then I can correlate it and say that minus infinity to zero means that if a person is really sinning a lot, then we would put them in the direction of minus infinity. And if a person never sins at all, then they will have finally achieved zero. I believe that that's the scale that a person is going to be on if they are living according to the Old Covenant. That the Old Covenant is minus infinity to zero. That the best you can possibly ever achieve if you are fully obedient to God and if you repent of all of your sins and you achieve the goal of the Christian life of never sinning anymore, then you will be a zero. You will be a zero. You will have accomplished the point of zero where you no longer have any sin. But you know, even in the law, in the law of Moses, there was never any promise, there was never any suggestion that if you were completely repentant and obedient to all of the commandments, that you would actually know your God. And so that's why I put it at zero. I believe that it would be at zero because you still wouldn't know the Lord. You may know yourself, or at least you may have deceived yourself to the extent where you can say you no longer sin anymore. But how impressive is that going to be? I mean, you go before the Lord in heaven, right? You die. Your life here ends. And you go before your God in the kingdom of heaven. And you see him and you say, Lord, aren't you glad that I'm here? Because I'm the guy who never sinned anymore after some particular date. I'm the one who never sinned. I repented of all of my sins finally. I was fully obedient to you from that day on. Don't you remember me? I'm the person who always obeyed the Sabbath law. I'm the person who always ate those things that were clean and never ate those things that were unclean. I always tithed. I was always in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Weeks and, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles. I was there. Didn't you see me? Didn't you notice me? Wasn't I peculiar amongst all the people in the world? Didn't you see that? I, 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 I. That's what all of this is about. All of this makes you into one big zero because it doesn't mean that you know him. You may not know him. In fact, I would suggest you don't know him. If you are living under the basis of the old covenant, there was never any promise, any suggestion that you would actually know him. 
And that was what the Hebrews were struggling with, who this letter was written to. They were struggling on this scale between minus infinity and zero. Their life, their race, their way of living was completely consumed with this scale between minus infinity and zero. And that they believed that their goal, their success, would finally be achieved when they were fully obedient to their God. But today, in the Christian world, people believe the same thing. They just live on the basis of different laws. Or maybe some of the laws. People will take a subset of the Law of Moses. Those things that they feel can apply to them today. And the rest of those things, well, those are the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus fulfilled. But the rest of them, you know, you better live in obedience to them. Like, don't murder. Well, I can appreciate that. Don't steal. I can appreciate that. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. How are you doing with that one? Look, I understand that these things are things that we should definitely avoid. I'm not suggesting that there are things that we should embrace at all. I'm not suggesting that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that you're dealing with the scale between minus infinity and zero, and the best you can ever achieve is zero. But that the new covenant is about something entirely different that is on a scale of zero to positive infinity. That there is something else beyond that. People will ask me, well, what do I do now? Well, you have again asked the wrong question. Because if you ask the question, what do I do now, then again, you have forgotten. You have rejected that this is no longer about what you do. That this is fully, completely about what he has already done. And what he will now do within and through you. And what I mean by do within and through you, I don't mean that somehow he's going to overcome your will in some magical, mystical way so that you're going to now live a life of obedience. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the fact that you, you personally, need to be changed and transformed. You, you need to be transformed through the indwelling presence of his spirit, that he will work within you, in you, to change you. And once that has occurred, then certainly there will be opportunities for him to be manifested within and through you in such a way that he will work within and through you to accomplish his purposes. But that's something that happens after he has made a change in your heart. After that, first he needs to, but he can't until after you get past the old covenant and walk on the basis of the new covenant. If you can consider these two perspectives, then move on into verse 5. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it is written, And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? And then in verse 10 it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness 
Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, in most cases, people look at these verses and and consider them from this perspective, consider them from the Old Covenant perspective, from the perspective of minus infinity to zero, whereas minus infinity is really sinful, and zero means you don't sin anymore. And when people look at it from that point of view, when they read these verses from that point of view, this is the natural conclusion. The conclusion is to say that on occasion, you may deviate from zero. You may go negative. You may go negative because some sin gets into your life. And when that happens, don't worry. Your God is with you. He's following you around. And he's waiting for you to commit some sin in your life. He's waiting for you to be enslaved by some sin, to be entangled by some sin. And when this happens, he's going to intervene. He will divinely intervene in your life. He will find a way to get into your life and cause a great deal of pain and suffering in your life. He will find a way to make things go bad for you in some way. And when this happens, you need to recognize that it's because of the sin in your life. That the reason why you are experiencing some pain and suffering or failure or loss is because you've got some sin in your life. And you may not know what it is. Maybe you don't know what it is. Don't worry. Come to me as your spiritual leader, as your pastor, and I will help you identify what this sin could potentially be. This is what some people believe. I don't believe this. But I want you to hear me say this because while many people don't say this directly, indirectly, this is what gets communicated. This is not some straw man that I'm putting up and then start tearing down. I know there are a lot of people who would say, well, I would never say that. Well, of course you would say that. However, what you do say communicates that. And that's that's the point. That's the issue. It's not whether or not you agree with me. It's whether or not this is what you actually believe or this is what is reflected in your life. That's the point. So pay attention. People do go to spiritual leaders seeking for counsel to help them identify what potential sins the Lord may be trying to deal with at that time. And people will then try to find a way to overcome their sins. They will then strive in whatever way is necessary to get rid of this sin, whatever it takes, they will they will do so to the point of, of shedding blood if necessary, as was expressed in verse 4. Whatever it takes in order to get over this sin, because if you don't, then God is not going to stop punishing you. But it really isn't punishment. We call it discipline. And when you finally get through this, then you'll go back to zero until you start sinning again with something else. But don't worry. This is an indicator that you are a child of God. It's an indicator because the Lord is intervening, causing pain and suffering so that he can work through these sins that you struggle with. He can help you get through them in some way. Because if you don't, you're just going to experience a lot of pain until you do. That's how a lot of people view this. Now, I do not. I view verses 5 through 12, Hebrews chapter 5 through 12, in a very different way. I look at it from the point of view of this scale between zero and positive infinity. But this is the way that I normally approach it. The way that I approach it is to say that this word discipline does not have to do with punishment for a past event. Instead, this word has a different meaning, and it does. If you were to do an analysis of this word in the Greek language, you would see that the intent of this word, 
the meaning behind this word and its placement, especially considering the scripture that is quoted. If you were to really study what is being quoted here, especially considering the word that is chosen, and also study the word in the Hebrew, you would find that this word refers to preparation for a future event, not punishment for a past event. That there is a discipline, there is a preparation for something in the future that has nothing to do with the past. That's a very different kind of discipline. It is preparation for a future event, not punishment for a past event. And I believe that this can be described on the scale from zero to positive infinity, that it does not have to do with your past sins. It has to do with the future issues that you are going to be confronted with. That's what he's referring to. And this is a difficult thing for people to get past. It's a very difficult thing for people to even consider because of the biases that people have. You know, when they consider the goal of the Christian life is to stop sinning, you read verses like that from that point of view. But when you consider that the goal of the Christian life is to start trusting, it is to start believing, and it is to rely on what he has already done for you, not on what you're going to do for him or what you are not going to do on his behalf, what sins you are not going to commit, if you can make that transition and recognize that your purpose is to actually know your God and to be thankful for him and to listen to him, to hear from him, to let him guide you, to let him meet your needs, your need for love, your need for acceptance, your need for understanding, your need for purpose, your need for safety and security, for respect and honor, your needs that you have, if you will allow him to meet these needs that you have, then he is preparing you. He is preparing you for what you are going to be confronted with in the future, for what you're going to experience in the future. That's the kind of discipline that he is referring to. In a previous program, I was talking about the fact that I struggled once with the notion that I probably would not be willing to die for my faith, that maybe under certain circumstances I would deny the Lord Jesus because I wasn't willing to die for him. But today he has done a work in me such that I would be willing to die for my faith, that I would be willing to die before I would turn away from him, before I would deny that he is my God. That is a preparation. That is a discipline that he has done in my heart for which there is no law. There is no law that says anything about that. There was a time when I would not have forgiven people for the sins that they have committed against me. In fact, that was a very serious struggle that I had when I first got saved. The fact that I just simply could not forgive some people who really, truly, deeply hurt me. It was hard. It was difficult to, to continue to live recognizing that they were not going to be able to compensate me adequately in the way that I wanted, and that they were not going to do it. And even if they could, they still wouldn't do it. It was difficult for me to struggle with this notion of forgiveness, but today he has done a work in me so that I can easily forgive others for similar sins that they may commit against me now that were committed against me once before. This is a discipline, a preparation for future events, for future experiences of life, for future sins that are committed against me. And also for me to be able to say no to the temptations that I am confronted with today. You know, there were there was a time when if I was confronted with the temptations that I am confronted with right now, that I would give in. 
I would give in, but today I don't give in. I don't give in to those temptations. I am not the same person. I have been grown. I have been mature. I have been changed by my God who has worked with me from a little boy to a mature man of God. That is something that he has done. That is the discipline. That is the discipline that I believe he is referring to here. I really believe that that's what he's referring to, that this is a discipline of preparation for future events. And so please consider Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 in this context. And I do believe you will read them from a very different point of view, that they will speak something different to you. And the Hebrews also would have struggled with this because their bias, their belief, was that the discipline of God was also punishment for past events. It was punishment for sins. It was his intervention to find some way to get us to stop sinning. But when you think about the sin as being the sin of unbelief, then the discipline of our God is a discipline of growing us to believe in him more, to trust in him more. I have done a specific program on this subject, and I would like to encourage you to listen to it. It's titled, The Discipline of God, where I have spoken about these verses from that context. But here, as I'm doing a verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews, I wanted to address this from a different point of view, from a point of view that is more fluid and consistent from Hebrews chapter 11 into Hebrews chapter 12. And so for a different perspective concerning this, I would like to encourage you to listen to the program that I did on The Discipline of God. But when he does this work in your heart, when he actually conforms you more to his image because of the way that he prepares you, then there are going to be opportunities in the future for this to be realized. And these circumstances, as I was just explaining, these circumstances are often going to be recognized as circumstances where others are going to be sinning against you. But when this happens, how you choose to respond to this person will determine whether or not they continue to perpetrate evil against you, or perhaps they may have a change of heart. Your response can have something to do with that. It may not always be that way. Certainly, I can think of some circumstances where it isn't that way, but there are many other circumstances when it will be that way. And so let me just consider those for a moment. If that's the case, then the way that you engage the world will be to engage the world with the pursuit of peace, not with the pursuit of conflict, not with the pursuit of still trying to obtain compensation for violations and sins for which there is no compensation, things like that. There will be a measurable result when you pursue peace with all men. And I will continue with this in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,